You ready? Yes. Five, four, three, two, one. Welcome to Up in Your Business with Carrie McCoy, a production of FlagandBanner.com. Through storytelling and conversational interviews, this weekly radio show and podcast offers listeners an insider's view into the commonalities of successful people and the ups and downs of risk-taking. Connect with Carrie through her candid, often funny, and always informative weekly blog. There, you'll read, learn, and make comment about her life as a 21st century wife, mother, daughter, and entrepreneur. And now it's time for Carrie McCoy to get all up in your business. Thank you, Son Gray. My guest today... Mr. Ernie Dumas is kind of famous around these parts because he has been writing about Arkansas politics since 1954, the year Orville Faubus defeated Governor Cherry. At the request, or should I say nagging, of CALS, the Central Arkansas Library System, Mr. Dumas has written a book, a political memoir, called The Education of Ernie Dumas. Through the eyes of this revered journalist, we read deeply personal, untold stories and learn about the fragilities and strengths of some of Arkansas's most controversial and colorful public figures. How this young boy, Ernie, born in a rural South Arkansas town that had little book learning in the town, grew up to be the associate editor of the largest newspaper in Arkansas, is the story of what makes America great. With no further ado, I'll say it's a pleasure to welcome to the table political journalist first, turned author, orator, and now historian, Mr. Ernie Dumas. Thank you, Carrie. You're welcome. Before we get into politics and your life's work, let's talk about your rural town you grew up in, your mother and your father. And I asked you right before we came on to pronounce the name of the town, and you said it's not even there anymore. It's called Champagnole, and it's C-H-A-M-P-A-G-N-O-L-L-E. French, I guess. It's French, and it's named after a town in the middle of France, which I, visit, I, I passed through there uh, eight or nine years ago and saw the highway sign, Champenot, and I said, this is where we're from. <laughs> so uh, that's that's the story about the Champenot. But Champenot was a uh, – when, when I grew up, it, was, it really didn't exist then in 19 – I was born in 1937 – but I thought it was a sawmill town because well, your it, father worked it, for the sawmill. Well, there was a sawmill. There were sawmills all around the area. That, that Union County and that part of Arkansas is a big lumber timber is the biggest part. Of, used to be the biggest part of their economy, except for oil. The two of those, oil and oil and timber, were the big things. So my daddy was a uh, he hauled logs. That's basically what he did. After he had early on hauled oil when you had the first oil boom there. But uh, after hauling oil for this uh, rich woman uh, for a few months, uh, she never paid him. So he found a lawyer and sued her and, and won the lawsuit. But the lawyer took all the money and said my daddy still owed him more money. Uh, so Why would a rich person not pay you? Well, I don't know. But anyway, so my daddy said, I don't care what you do, but you cannot be a lawyer. So... <laughs> So he thought all lawyers were that way. You know, so. Yeah. So, so it became was, a reporter. Is that any better? Yeah. <laughs> so Champano was, uh, it had been the county seat of the county, Union County, El Dorado subsequent was, after the oil boom. But uh, Champano had been just a little, it was a, it was a little community on the banks of the Arkansas River, the Washita River, where mm-hmm. DeSoto allegedly had camped one night on the banks of the river there at Champano. 
so that's that's how Champaign came into being. So, and it's the county seat, you said. It well, was? it was the it had been the county seat for a time in the in the 19th century. But it's but, gone now. But it's it's there's nothing there. Maybe there's it used to be when I grew up there was a there was a kind of a, a bar down at the foot of the hill where you could get a beer. Uh, of course, but, uh, but that was that was it. But th- there's nothing at Champaign now, and I don't think except the cemetery where all my relatives are buried up on top of the hill. You know, I read this in your book, and it felt like I really loved the way you wrote this. And I felt like I really knew your mother, and I loved your mother, and I loved your honesty when you wrote this. In your book, you wrote, My mother grew up farther south on a truck farm near the sawmill town of Strong. Though sickly and possessing only one good eye, went to high school, passes the state teacher examination, and as a single girl, taught in several tiny country schools well that was that was that was she uh she came to teach in the little the, the little t- community of Champanole. and there was a there was a a wood frame building i never saw it it was gone by the time i was old enough to uh to recognize anything so that's where she taught and in one room schoolhouse and that's where she had met my father who had gone through the sixth grade down there nobody went past the sixth grade uh so uh, how did that town produce you well, nobody in that town went to college till well, your brother yeah, went. and as i say there was not a, it was not really a town it was just even when i grew up it was it was just a place in in the, in the road on top so of, how did you and your brother the only two people to go to college from those parts well uh we started the school that that the little champion old school where my mother taught until she met my father and uh and my father was the oldest of about eight kids and so Two of his brothers were in school under my mother, and I think maybe the year, maybe two years that she taught there. And so she got, she married my daddy, and then the school closed. And I guess when my mother, they couldn't find another teacher, I guess, so the school closed. And so we were then routed to a little community, a little school called Quinn, which was over on the highway. And Quinn had 24 of us. The, the, the total enrollment in the school district was 24. My brother, From first to twelfth grade. Well, we didn't. Nobody went to the twelfth grade, but uh, eighth grade. You go through the sixth or eighth grade, but you, and so it was one room. We had one teacher, and she would uh, uh, there'd be the first grade row and a second grade row, and then maybe a third grade row and a fourth grade, and uh, and if there was might not be a fifth grader, and there might be one sixth grader or something, and so she would start off the morning at the first grade, and she would give our lessons, and then the second grade, and then she'd step over about one two feet. And talk to the second graders. So, as a student, you got to hear all the lessons all day from one through fourth or fifth or sixth grades. So that was until I was going to be in the fifth grade. And uh, the teachers there, the, the the single teacher and her husband, who was a superintendent and the bus driver and disciplinarian, and built the fire in the classroom and so forth, and whipped us when we needed it. <laughs> so they left, and so. They, uh, they they abolished the school district, and we went into El Dorado after that. Ah, and, and so they we went got, all the way to the 12th grade. And they went all the way to the 12th grade. And you El Dorado had, was a big, rich town. Oh, because it had oil. It had oil, and there were many millionaires in, in El Dorado. And uh, you had a teacher suggest to you that you should go get a job at a newspaper? Well, I was, uh, as I said, my father said, because uh, nobody had gone to college, and he had gone through the sixth grade, and my mother had actually gone to high school. Uh, but nobody else down there had gone to college, but everybody was going to college by that time. And so my father thought, we, 
that we might go to college. So, uh, and he suggested you ought to be an engineer. So you need to get some math and science. So I was my senior year. I was taking a, a lot of advanced mathematics and chemistry and all those kinds of things. But I took journalism, of course, because my brother, my older brother, had taken journalism, and uh, it was easy. He, and I, he was easy the sports class. editor of the little the high school paper, and of course he'd have to. Play, he was a big football player and track star, so I covered the games for him and wrote up this, the stories for him. And I was two years behind him and, and uh, uh, when I was in the 10th grade. So when I was a senior, I said, well, that was easy stuff. I'll just take this journalism stuff. That's easy. You don't have to study or anything. So I took journalism in my senior year, and so the teacher was a woman named Ruth Jenkins. And I guess I owe my career to Ruth Jenkins. And so about three or four weeks into the term, and we put out one little high school paper and I wrote some sports stories for it I guess she came to me one after said uh, would you like to work at the uh, El Raider Daily News and I said doing what and she said uh, as a reporter writing and I said well sure and uh, she said well go down and see Bob Hayes at the at the evening time, uh, news times office this afternoon and see talk to him so they needed she said they need a reporter badly so I skipped the bus and walked down to the News Times office and went in to see Bob Hayes, and uh, who was the old guy who was the editor, been the editor for 30 or 40 years. And he sat me down and tossed me three or four news releases and said, boil each of these down to 150 words or something. And so I did. I sat there and typed them and put them back on his desk, and he looked at them, and he said, all right, what time do you get out of school every, every day? And I said, well, 3.30 or something. He said, all right, well, come on down here every day when you get out of school. And so that's what I did. So I, after I left school, high school every day, I'd go down and I'd go over to the courthouse and go to all the, the courts and the prosecuting attorney and the sheriff and go down to the city hall and the police department and get all the news and come back and I'd write up all of that. And How old are you? I guess I was, I was 16 when I went to, went to work there, but I was soon to be 17. So and that's, that's what I did. why you should live in a small town. So that's so that's uh, that's what I did, and so I worked uh, 40, 50, 60, 70 hours a week. My high school never never cracked a book the rest of my senior year. It graduated you, and I, yeah, they, I graduated all right, and uh, so well, and you went on to college to do the same thing, didn't you? Yeah, and so then uh, mm-hmm. I, I went to college. Uh, did the same thing. I did the same thing. I, I had we went into town every Saturday to the feed store to get the feed for the chickens and hogs and stuff out there and and seeds you know we planted we had a truck farm of sorts where'd you go to college arkadelphia i went to henderson state teachers college uh, for three years until until they kind of ran me off all right this is a great place to take a break when we come back we'll continue our conversation with mr ernie dumas retired assistant editor of the arkansas gazette who's been writing about arkansas politics for over 60 years in this next segment we're going to peek behind the curtain so to speak as ernie recounts true stories from his new book and political memoir the education of ernie dumas we'll be back right after the break you're listening to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy, a production of FlagandBanner.com. Over 40 years ago, with only $400, Carrie founded Arkansas Flag and Banner. During the last four decades, the business has grown and changed. Over this time, Carrie's business and leadership knowledge grew. As early as 2004, she began sharing her knowledge in her weekly blog. In 2009, she founded the nonprofit Friends of Dreamland Ballroom. 
and in 2014, Brave Magazine, a biannual publication. Today, she has branched out into this very radio show, YouTube channel, and podcasts. Each week, you'll hear candid conversations between her and her guests about real-world experiences on a variety of businesses and topics that we hope you'll find interesting, inspiring, and educational. Stay up to date by going to flagandbanner.com and joining our email list. You'll receive our popular Water Cooler Weekly email that notifies you of upcoming guests, happenings at Dreamland Ballroom, sales at flagandbanner.com, access to Brave Magazine articles, and Carrie's current blog post. All that in one weekly email. Telling American-made stories, selling American-made flags, the flagandbanner.com. Back to you, Carrie. You're listening to Up In Your Business with me, Carrie McCoy, and I'm speaking today with Mr. Ernie Dumas, Politico, historian, past editor of the Arkansas Democrat, and now author of The Education of Ernie Dumas. <coughs> Did I say historian? Because you definitely are. This book is so good. You have done a huge service to the people of Arkansas writing this book. Before the break, I want to tell everybody we talked about your rural upbringing and how unlikely it is for you to become who you became, but that it's really just taking advantage of opportunities that are everywhere for everybody. And you did it. I'm sure in the 10th grade when you went down there to apply for your job at the Gazette, at the paper, you were scared to death, but you did it anyway. I don't Probably. remember whether I was scared or not. I just, I didn't know what was Isn't it nice to be young and naive? All right, people that know you, this next segment is going to be fun. And people that know you are going to think this is going to be really hard for you because you're going to have to give me one word. (laughs) That's the funny part, which you probably is not going to be able to do. But one word or two or maybe a sentence to describe each of these Arkansas governors. Your book starts with Orville Faubus. One word, Orville Faubus? Uh, I guess cunning would be Orville Faubus. I would have thought bigot. <laughs> well, he really wasn't. He, I, I think you know. I think I got that from your book. Yeah. Every, for people that don't know, Orville Faubus is the one that did the Central High Crisis and pulled that because a lot of people don't realize that. And he, I think he spent the rest of his life after that trying to live that down in his in his own mind, trying to hoping that somehow he could. Uh, transform history that would not recognize him as the villain in all of that. Mm-hmm. And I had a number of conversations with him toward the end of his life in which he was, you could see him struggling to try to, uh, to, try to justify what he did to improve his, his place in history. Mm-hmm. But anyway, that's, his, that's Orville Faubus. Kind of a tragic figure. Tragic. Cunning and tragic. Uh, yes. All right. Winthrop Rockefeller. Winthrop Rockefeller. He's the your most, favorite one, isn't he? In well, the book. in a way. He's the most unusual politician in the history of Arkansas, a successful politician. And, one and word. Perhaps in an, in, in, in one, one word. word. Uh, I guess genuine. He was committed to doing something for Arkansas. It was a, became the passion of his life to resurrect uh, his kind of reputation because he had he had fled New York City. He was part of the Rockefeller clan. He had fled New York City in disgrace because he had he was a big he was a notorious drunk and playboy gambler. He'd mar- gambler. He 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 married Bobo Sears, the the kind of flashy B grade actress, and then they'd had this big divorce that was on the front page of all the tabloids and everything. And he was a disgrace to the whole Rockefeller family. 
That's why he came to Arkansas. And he came to Arkansas to escape all of that and the notoriety after his divorce. And uh, and here he discovered uh, his mission in life, which was to take this poor state and transform it into a modern state. And uh, uh, so that was his dream. And so he ran for office and amazingly, with the help of a great fortune, of course, gets elected and then felt like in, in the four years he was governor that he had failed. And so he died in, I think, a very unhappy and bitter man. Uh, he didn't live very long, did he? He lived about two years after his defeat and got cancer and uh, and died. Uh, you have a great story about him because of his drinking. Oh, yes. All right. Well, that was the story I told because, it, and as, as a number of these stories in the book are, are stories that, that I revealed that I was a part of. And mm-hmm. as a reporter, you're never supposed to be part of the story, and you try not to be. But there were several instances when I became uh, a, a part of the story. This one that I think that you're referring to is, uh, uh, as I've said, you know, he was notorious for drinking. That was his reputation. And he supposedly, there were rumors going around that he had this vast trove of pornography up on Pettigeen Mountain. And that he had all this liquor, these fancy liqueurs and whiskeys from all over the world up there. Uh, there were all kind of rumors like that spread about uh, Winthrop Rockefeller. But, you know, we in Arkansas, this was a, this was a, a southern Bible Belt state, and, and drinking was not, a, uh, was not an acceptable thing in much of the state. Uh, and you couldn't sell alcohol in much of the state, and particularly you know, in the governor's mansion. People didn't expect the governor would not be drinking in the governor's mansion, at least since Jeff Davis was governor at the turn of the century, and he was a notorious drunk, and, and people loved him for drinking. And so he was... Uh, he said there were there were pint Baptists and court Baptists, and he was a court Baptist. <laughs> and then the, and then the, and then the Baptist Church expelled him. So anyway, so Rockefeller, uh, he, had, he this is at the end of his first term, and he's running for a second term in 1968, and uh, against a very formidable Democratic candidate, Marion Crank, who was the Speaker of the House of Representatives and a very accomplished uh, and and smart man and backed by the Stevens interest and so forth. So it was going to be a very, very tough race for him. And because he'd been so far kind of unsuccessful in getting anything done and had kind of championed civil rights. So he was in supposedly in deep trouble. And it was early in the morning he was making a speech. Well, that's right. And so he called a special session of the legislature in the summer of 1968. The election is coming up in November. And he calls a special session of the legislature to get some things done. He's got a prison reform bill that he wants to pass to, to try to transform this, this corrupt uh, prison system. So at special legislative sessions, you know, typically they all, the senators and the House members all gather in the House of Representatives, usually at 10 o'clock in the morning at the first day of the session. And the governor comes before him and addresses the session and lays out his program, what he wants him to pass. And so that usually happens kind of in the middle of a Monday morning. So Rockefeller addresses the legislative session. And he was not a good speaker. He, he was dyslexic, and he had to have his speeches written out so he could, in great huge letters, so he could read it easily. And he, he, had, he had problems sometimes speaking, and, and he often slurred a few words and stopped and had to start over again and so forth. So that, he was not a great speaker. So he makes his speech, 
And so I'm covering it for the Gazette. And so typically what you do after speech, I'll go around to key legislators and ask them about the governor's program and what they think and what might he pass and be able to pass and so forth. So I go up to Senator Clarence Bell of Parkin, who was a big, powerful man. He was a he was uh, from Parkin, Arkansas, over in the over in the Delta. He's a very powerful man, chair of the of the Education Committee, and uh, in, in some ways the most powerful man in the House of Representatives. And so I asked uh, Senator Bell about the, the governor's speech, and uh, uh, and he says, "Well, I thought he had two or three shots too many before he came here this morning." Now this is morning. You don't drink in the morning, do you? So anyway. <laughs> You know, I'll write it down on my notepad. And uh, Senator Richard Earl Griffin from Crossett is standing nearby, and he echoed that, said, yeah, people should be able to watch that speech. It'd be a, it'd be a shame to their governor. So I go down a little afterward. I go down to the governor's office to ask for the governor's Rockefeller's comment about it, see whether he had been drinking that morning. Uh, and that's Normally, we don't do things like that, but since it's a senator mentions his drinking, uh, then I feel compelled to ask him about it. So I get down to the governor's office. I go into the front door of the governor's office, and, uh, and as I'm going into the governor's office, Bill Connolly, his press secretary, is coming out of his office. And my my notepad is in my hip pocket. We meet in the doorway, and I said, Bill, I need to see, uh, I need to see the governor. And he said, what about? And I said, well, I need to ask him a question. About what? And he, I said, well, Senator Bell said he had two or three shots too many before he addressed the legislature this morning. And so poor old Bill Connolly, just a wonderful, sweet man, he said, Ernie, I was with him all morning, and he, and he had one drink. And so anyway, I said, okay. And so he, he said, but the governor's going up, he's going up to Pettigene. He won't be back until this evening. He goes on, and I pull out my notepad then, and I, I write his thing down. One drink. So then I write a story, and it's the next day, the front page of the Gazette. Of course, the lead story above is the governor's speech and the big program that he'd laid out. And down at the bottom of the page under three-column headline, and I can still see it, the headline, and it said, uh, Senator Bell says W.R., that's where the initials were used in headline, says W.R. had, quote, two hyphen three drinks too many. AIDS has had only one. So that was the headline. <laughs> so Bill Conley's account later, Bill was he was at the house the next morning, and he's still in bed early in the morning, and he gets a call it's from Tom Isley, who was executive secretary to the governor, later a United States district judge for many, many years, died about two or three years ago, G. Thomas Isley. So Isley says, Conley, uh, write a letter of resignation and be at the mansion uh, in, at 9 o'clock or some such time. Wanted Conley to resign yeah. from being yeah. Winthrop's Pre- press secretary. Press secretary, because that happened. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so he, and so Conley said, "Why?" And he said, "Have you read the Gazette this morning?" And he said, "No, I haven't." He said, "Get the Gazette and read the front page and write a letter of resignation and be at the mansion." So Conley goes out, picks up the paper, and there he sees that story on the front page, and he just heart sinks. So he sits down and writes a little two or three sentence letter of resignation and. Walks, goes out, drives out to the governor's mansion, and when he gets out there, they're all, all the moguls are gathered there. John Ward, who was his communica- Rockefeller's communications director, and Marion Burton, and Bob Faulkner, they're all the brain trust around there. They were all sitting in the living room, 
and he goes in and there Rockefeller's not there he's back in his bed he's still asleep and so they sit there and just chew on Pearl Connolly for an hour how could you do such a thing how could you write such a thing you know you've you've defeated him now he's he's going to be beaten because of this thing the people of Arkansas the governor's drinking at the mansion how could you be so stupid and he said well Dumas didn't have his he didn't have a notepad I didn't know he was going to quote me and John Ward supposedly said well, Connolly, that's he's a reporter. That's what reporters do. They quote you. Somebody comes in and says, the governor is awake. So they all troop back to the bedroom, and, and, and Rockefeller's sitting there on the edge of the bed in his pajamas, you know, scratching his head. And, and uh, they go in and said, and he said, what the hell are you guys doing in here? And, and so Isley goes over and grabs the letter out of, uh, out of Connolly's hand, takes it over and hands it to Rockefeller. And Rockefeller puts his glasses on and reads it, and he said, why is Conley resigning? Isley goes and gets the Gazette, and he's got it folded back to that little thing about my little story at the bottom of the page. And so hands it to him, and Rockefeller put, looks at it again, reads a little bit, and then he starts laughing. And he said, hell, I'm not going to fire, uh, fire Conley for lying for me. He knows I had five drinks if I had one. Now get the hell out of here. i gotta, I got to get dressed. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so that's what happened. And so the next day, he went over to North Little Rock to talk. He had a supposed to talk to the Rotary Club or the Kiwanis Club or something. And so somebody had there asking him about how many drinks he, if he had had a drink, and if uh, uh, or and how many drinks he had before uh, before he got up to talk that morning. And so Rockefeller just kind of grinned sheepishly and held up one finger. <laughs> <laughs> So that's that story. I love that story. Hell, I'm not going to fire him for saying I had one when I had five. That's a good job. All right. One word for Dale Bumpers. Um, Integrity, I guess. Oh, that's nice of you to say. He was, and I say that because, well, one, he was the most effective governor in history. I mean, he he was a governor for four years. He had no no experience. He was from a, a, a small town. His daddy thought politicians were an honorable profession. Yeah, thought I, politics was a noble profession, and so he went got into politics because he he thought his daddy expected him to be mm-hmm. a politician and expected him to be president of the United States. And I don't think people realize that he's the re, he took electricity to the rural areas of Arkansas. Yes, well, uh, that that was kind of Sid McMath. I thought that, that was uh, Dale Bumper. Well, he did some of that, but. Uh, but what he did in those four years as governor, he passed uh, a lot of taxes and the biggest program in Arkansas history for an education and health care. Oh, maybe dram- it was health care. Health care um, and, and parks. He, 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 he uh, created a number of new parks and, and redeveloped the other state parks. And uh, a high, he had a highway, big highway program. So he did more in that four years. But the thing that I think separating from everybody else was his obsession with honesty and he was and one of the I think revealing things in the book is that he tells me that afterward his happiest day of his life was the day after he was elected to the Senate and so he immediately resigned as governor so he could go be sworn in to get a little seniority in the Senate but the day he resigned as governor leaving about six weeks left in his term uh, he said it was the happiest day of his life because I, every day, every night, he went to went to bed worrying about corruption. It's somewhere among these twenty five or thirty thousand state employees, 
somebody was doing something rotten. Somebody was doing something dishonest. And he was afraid that his children were going to read that their father was corrupt. Oh. And, and he said it, it just drove him crazy. And his, mm-hmm. he talked about it to his wife. Because the buck stopped with him. Yeah. And so he said he was this vast relief when he got the Because when it. you're a senator, you just answer to yeah, yourself. You, yeah. You got, you got you know, four or five employees. All right. Uh, David Pryor. Well, David Pryor, just, just the, the most decent human being you could ever expect to meet. And uh, had no ego, which was unusual for a politician not to have any kind of ego that is and uh the only politician successful politician i knew who did not have an ego uh and uh, loved everybody and uh, uh tried to do his best his four years as governor were difficult because we sank into recession just about the time he became governor dale bumpers was also the luckiest man alive uh he was just kind of born under under a lucky star uh, because everything he did worked out uh, when he took office, the economy was booming. Uh, farm prices were sky high. The crops were good. Everybody was made a ton of money. The treasury filled with uh, with income, so he could build buildings on all the college campuses and everything. Got a lot he, done. He, and he just he was just lucky. All right, as here's, well. here's a good governor, Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton. In some ways, I guess the most accomplished and the most brilliant politician. I've ever known. So brilliant. Uh, he was uh, he was brilliant, and you recognize that immediately about him. And he, not only he was brilliant, he was a speed reader. He could read vast uh, amounts of uh, of stuff uh, very quickly and and uh, absorb it. He could read books and just flip the pages, uh, and and do it. And somebody would write a speech for him, and he would just kind of riffle through the pages very quickly and put it down. And he could just deliver that speech, and not not verbatim, but very beautifully. So that's what he did. So plus, he had real charisma. Uh, so he had everything it took to be president. And you recognize right away, as as many did nationally, that this guy is going is probably going to be president someday. Uh, ambitious too would be another. He was group. ambitious he's as well. You said in your book he's probably the most ambitious um, politician you ever covered. Yeah, he was ambitious when he had confidence. He knew he was—he knew he was good, mm-hmm. uh, um, and he wanted to be—he wanted to be a great uh, a politician. He wanted to do great things. Frank White. Frank White. He was just—I uh, I, guess—honest. Uh, he, he was not a great politician. He didn't—he uh, didn't have in mind when he got elected governor. He didn't have a clue that he was going to be elected governor. He didn't expect to be elected governor. Who was he running against? He was running against Bill Clinton. Oh, that's right. He and, beat Bill Clinton. Uh, Bill Clinton, Clinton yes, yeah, yes. Yeah, had, had, had kind of uh, uh, angered just every every interest in Arkansas mm-hmm. in his first uh, year in office. So so Frank beat him and didn't expect to. Uh, he expected to get his name out there and, and run, and, he, and he, he decided to run right at the last minute. And so he wanted to run for Congress. That was his, his purpose. He wanted to run for Congress, but uh, he couldn't. So he needed to file for something, and he ran for governor so he could get well-known and campaign. And then the next year, in 1982, then he'd run for something real. So, But he got elected. And mm-hmm. so— uh, I don't think people realize that there was a, a lot of young people don't probably realize that Bill Clinton was the governor then for four years, then got defeated. 
and was the governor again for eight years, making him the longest governor, yes, I believe. Yes, Well, actually, at that time, we had two-year terms. I was going to say it was two years, yeah. and then he... Uh, he got and then defeated he, after two years, his first term. Right. And then he comes You're back right. and defeats uh, uh, Frank White uh, in, in 1982. And, and then he. Uh, and didn't they change it to limited four years after that? Uh, and prior four, to that, it was two years indefinite? Well, you could run indefinitely. as uh, you Two-year two indefinite terms. terms. Yeah, so Orville Fobb served six terms. Six uh, two-year terms. Two years. And so uh, they changed it in 1984, I guess, to four-year terms. I think Clinton did terms. it, didn't he? Uh, they, they passed the constitutional amendment, in, I think, in 1984 uh, or 1984 general election. I think they passed it, make it a four-year term, limiting it to two terms. So there's no limit when, when Bill Clinton got elected. He could have been elected um, many more times. Oh, uh, all right. Here's the one I really enjoyed reading about, Jim Guy Tucker. Jim Guy Tucker was the unluckiest uh, politician, I guess. You know, he and Bill Clinton were kind of contemporaries and sort of adversaries because they were both bright, uh, dimpled, Ivy League-educated politicians with great ambitions, and they were and they were maybe equally brilliant. So they were vying for the same. So they were, and they were in the same party and same philosophy about everything. They were both uh, modernists. They wanted to get things done. And uh, so uh, they were, had, would have a big program. Uh, but Jim Guy, uh, you know, their ambitions clashed very early on. And so they became not mortal enemies, but they were adversaries. You called Jim Guy in your book swashbuckling Ivy Leaguer. Yes, Nobody well, uses he, the word swashbuckling sh- anymore. Yes, well, he, he, except he, for maybe in Huckleberry he, Finn's book. Well, he wanted <laughs> to be a warrior. Jim Guy was. He's uh, a marine. He was I was a marine. surprised to hear he was a well, marine. He joined the Marine Corps and then he wanted to go to Vietnam. He did, but he, but not as a. Well, he wanted to go to Vietnam, but he flunked the physical. He had this uh, this disease that later afflicted him and and nearly killed him. But uh, uh, he had this kind of liver disease. And so he, he didn't get to go to Vietnam, and so he he tried again and uh, and, st- and flunked the physical again, and so he just went on his own. So he just as a war course, he went over there and and, and did a did and a ended book. up writing a book about the he Arkansas did. servicemen. He did, and so uh, I remember George Fisher and all of the cartoons of of Jim Guy Tucker would always have him in fatigues, and uh, and uh, and carrying a gun uh, around with him. So. Colorful, colorful, uh, yeah, yeah. colorful, interesting guy. Really enjoyed reading about him too. And then he was unlucky because, as I say in the mm-hmm. book, we recount how he got the the the, the, the star investi- Kenneth Star investigation of the Clintons over Whitewater. Never got anything from Bill Clinton. They never uh, were able to accuse Bill Clinton of doing anything or Hillary of doing anything in those seven or eight years that they investigated Whitewater and all of the other ancillary uh, issues that flowed out of the Whitewater thing. But they did succeed in getting Jim Guy Tucker because the strategy of prosecutions in these things is to flip people. You start off with somebody who's not some lower-level person and find something that they did illegal, and everybody's done something illegal. Mm-hmm. And so they'd find somebody that got a loan from from Jim McDougal's outfit and, and maybe got it under false pretenses. and they, So anyway, they... They charge that guy with something, and then and then you flip, get him to flip, and say, okay, on Jim McDougal, for example, and you keep going up until you get to the big guy, uh, Bill Clinton, who who was the object, and so they went after Jim Guy Tucker over two things. One, he had started some cable television uh, franchises, and 
and declared bankruptcy in one of them. And so they accused him of having a false uh, bankruptcy. And so he was charged with fraud on the bankruptcy and, uh, uh, and then also for some kind of fraud connected with uh, the lending operations Misappropriations of Jim McDougal, yeah, of of Jim McDougal and this other small business administration thing that got involved in all of that. So in both instances, I think, he was convicted of both. One of them he pled guilty to finally because he was suffering from this liver ailment and he was dying. And so uh, he pled guilty to that. Of course, it turns out later on the bankruptcy was not fraudulent. And in fact, the, the IRS probably owed him money. But all of that was that concluded that after long after he was he had pled guilty and was sentenced but which was, he did because he was so ill he yeah, couldn't he have fight it and so but they but, but the problem was and the great injustice that was done to his both his reputation and to his career was that you know he's now a convicted felon and there's nothing he can do about it kennel star and the the whitewater investigation never would say what part of the bankruptcy code he had violated the judge wouldn't order uh, the uh, uh, the uh, IRS or the Justice Department, the Kenneth Starr, to say what part of the bankruptcy code he violated. So in, after he finally pled guilty, and he didn't have to go to prison, and he went up and had his had his uh, liver transplant. Liver transplant. They finally said, "Well, you got to you, you obviously owe the IRS some money. We got to establish how much money you owe the IRS." And so finally, in two thousand and one. Long after the Whitewater investigation had ended, the judge said, "Okay, you got to you got to tell him so we can calculate uh, what you owe." And when they finally said, "Okay, it was section so and so," that had passed years later, so it was not the law when Jim Guy Tucker took bankruptcy. So he did not violate the bankruptcy's law, and that so he tried to get it overturned, and the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeal said, "No, once you plead guilty, no matter what." That's it. You can't go back and reverse it. So he's a convicted felon forever. And they ended up sending him a check. I saw in your book for a dollar and forty-one cents. Dollar something, dollar forty-one, I believe, or something like that. Yes. So they finally said so we we couldn't we they couldn't establish what they, still, they probably owed him some money, but they couldn't yeah. establish how much. So finally, they said, well, let's strike a deal. And so they sent him this check for uh, whatever it was, a dollar forty-one. Forty-one. He framed it and put it on his wall in his living room. This is a crying shame right there. Uh, you had quit reporting, I think, when Mike Huckabee was in, became in office. Give me, but you could still, but you're still involved. Yeah. You're still doing a lot of stuff. Give me one word for Mike Huckabee. Uh, I'll give you a word that nobody will, not many people will agree with, and he would object to. Progressive. Contrary to all of his image and what he claimed about himself, he would uh, his record as governor. He was uh, he was in office nearly twelve years, uh, almost as long as Bill Clinton and almost as long as as, uh, as Orville Faubus. But what he did as governor, not what he said as governor, but what he actually got done. He raised more taxes than any governor in Arkansas history. I don't think people realize that. That's right, and and I know that because I researched it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when he was proclaiming when he ran for president that he was the first governor to cut taxes and he had to constantly stop the legislature from the Democratic legislature from raising taxes. So I went back and computed all the tax increases that he passed as governor and signed and, uh, and all those by Bill Clinton, who was in go- governor for 12 years. And, uh, and, and Mike Huckabee raised more taxes than Bill Clinton or Jim Guy Tucker. 
or, or rather or as uh, Dale Bumpers, who was also a, a tax and spender, I guess. So I, so I think that that's his record uh, as, as governor. And uh, in spite of his uh, protests that he was an arch conservative and, uh, and that he was against taxes. Mike Beebe. Mike Beebe, uh, an efficient governor. I don't think that uh, he could be ranked as a great governor because uh, the times determined whether you're a great governor or a disastrous governor, I think. Uh, and there were, there were easy times, so I don't know what much that he, that he, he was an effective governor. Uh, there were no scandals in his administration. Uh, there's not much you can say that he accomplished except he balanced the budget. But People every love governor, him. Every governor. Everybody about, loves him. Everybody does. He was, and he was a very effective governor. He could get things done. Uh, he, he didn't try to get a great deal done because there was not a lot, I guess, you thought needed to be done. Uh, so I would rank him as, a, as a, a, an effective governor, but uh, not as, a, not as an, a historic governor as you would count, I think, uh, Dale Bumpers and maybe Winthrop Rockefeller, who tried to do more than any governor in, uh, in Arkansas history. I, I think Winthrop Rockefeller, I would say, is the most liberal governor in Arkansas history and perhaps in American history. And he's a Republican. And he was a Republican. Okay, that brings us up to date. Asa Hutchinson, is the jury still out? Jury's still out on, on Asa Hutchinson. He, again, he's a hardworking and uh, an, an effective governor. He knows what he's doing. Uh, I wouldn't agree with a great deal that he has done, particularly in the area of health care. Uh, I think he damaged the, uh, the health care system. But I think uh, he has, he's had to work with, a, with his own party, and, uh, and, uh, and that's difficult. Uh, to work with your own party when you might disagree with uh, a lot of them. You wouldn't think that'd be difficult. Well, I mean, uh, it's uh, it is in the in the current times uh, since since he's relying upon Republicans to to to, to, to reelect. You, you said in your book, you wrote, I, in my long experience, three Arkansas politicians: Winthrop Rockefeller, Dale Bumpers, David Pryor nearly always followed the unpopular course of moral conviction. What do you mean by that? Well, I think uh, they thought uh, about things that had to be done. And in the case of all three, I think they all thought that we needed to raise taxes because you you had to build highways. You had to improve education. You had to improve higher education. You had to provide health care for people. And that's raising taxes is not a popular thing to do ever, anytime, by anybody. Mm-hmm. And uh, although I think the, the the voters were receptive to all of that, they didn't. They never punished Dale Bumpers uh, for raising taxes. They didn't punish Bill Clinton for raising taxes. They didn't punish. They did the first time. Mike Huffey. Well, he, he he the first time he raised a few. He raised one tax the first time, and that was the the, the tax on on vehicle and uh, and truck license fees. They punished him because he yielded to the pressure groups and accepted a revision of the vehicle license tag that lowered uh, the taxes on the big trucks and raised them on those who had pickups and small vehicles. That proved to be very, very unpopular in the rural areas of Arkansas. That's what beat him in the first time. You know, we haven't taken any breaks because it's so interesting. But I do want to tell everybody that you've been listening to Up In Your Business with me, Carrie McCoy, and that I've been speaking today with Mr. Ernie Dumas, politico, historian, past editor of the Arkansas Gazette, and author of the book, 
the education of Ernie Dumas. So newspaper policies and ethos at the time of Whitewater were, were this. You even you even alluded to it earlier that you wouldn't talk about something unless you got a quote from them. The policy of the newspapers then was no critical article could be published without the subjects involved having a chance to explain or justify their actions, even if it, they said no comment. Yes, and is I that think, true uh, today? Well, uh, I think it's probably not as much, not as true today as it was. Although, although you know the media like uh, you know the New York Times and Washington Post, that's 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 kind of their policy still, but it's not as rigid as it used to be because uh, you can get somebody to talk about it. But I I I think I made that reference in connection with uh, the Whitewater uh, you did reporting. Uh, and and actually before that in the, in the the I think the, the critical part of that book and the reason I think the most important part of the book starts with 1978. There's an election in 1978. That's the, the year that Bill Clinton was elected governor. But there was all simultaneously there was a Senate election where David Pryor gets elected to the Senate to succeed John L. McClellan who had died. And there are three candidates in that race: Jim Guy Tucker. Uh, and, uh, uh, and David Pryor, who was the sitting governor, and Jim Guy was the congressman from the second district, and Ray Thornton, who was a congressman from the South South Arkansas, who's the nephew of the Stevens, and the nephew of the Stevenses, lots of and, money. And so, the I think the the critical point of the book is this family feud that started uh, early in the in the 1970s. The family feud between one. The Stevens family, Witt and Jack Stevens, who were brothers and had made Witt had made a vast fortune in the uh, in the gas business and also in uh, in financial. Uh, they had a penny a, stocks or something. Penny, all of that, uh, and had a, an investment company. And so he and his brother made vast fortune, became the most powerful men in Arkansas, and they kind of ran politics for many years. So they had made a guy, a young man, who was also like Bill Clinton. And Jim Guy Tucker, a kind of a rising star in Arkansas, Park. good looking, smart, uh, good speaker, ambitious, mm-hmm. and uh, all about the same age as those guys. And so, Witt Stevens made him hired him out of, right out of college, and then turned over the gas company to him, made him president, and stepped out. And then made they who, had a great who the gas out. president? Made Je- Sheffield Je- Nelson the president. Sheffield of the gas, Nelson, that's president right. of Arkansas, Louisiana. And then gas he turned company. on him. And then they had a falling out. And, and both of them, you could say, both of them were kind of justified. They both had their own mm-hmm. uh, That's theories. an interesting. Yeah, it's a complicated thing. That's a whole thing. interesting chapter. We are almost out of time. One minute. I'm getting the signal. Y'all, this book is so good. It should be mandatory reading for everybody in Arkansas. Ernie, thank you for coming on the show thank today. You for, thank you for having me. It's and a pleasure. thank you for writing this book. I, We are forever grateful for to you uh here's your gift today in case you don't have one a u.s and arkansas flag for your desk do you have one already i do not isn't it amazing how many people don't have a u.s and arkansas flag on their desk i don't um i just want to say to everybody thanks for listening today we hope you've heard or learned something that's been inspiring or enlightening and that whatever it is we hope that it will up your life up your business up your independence i'm carrie mccoy and i'll see you next time on up in your business until then be brave and keep it up Have you been following the progress of Dreamland Ballroom upstairs from FlagandBanner.com? Well, we're getting close to the reopening. 
truthfully, assuming everything goes according to plan, the reopening is going to happen in the fall of this year. Here's where you come in, too. There's so much to do before we reopen. While the construction projects are going to help prepare the ballroom for public accessibility and safety, there are a bunch of smaller projects that we could really use your help on in this historic downtown Little Rock building. Over the next year, we're going to schedule volunteer work days, painting floors, restringing old lights, putting up new lights, decorating, lots of little projects. Help us give the ballroom a real facelift. By the way, have you got any old furniture or pieces that you'd like to get rid of that would look great in the historic Dreamland ballroom? Donate them to the Friends of Dreamland. We could use them to decorate the box seats, the balcony, the green rooms, and stage left and stage right wings. Please keep in touch with us by signing up for our email list. You can do that by following us on Facebook and Instagram. You'll also learn when these workdays are going to be scheduled and how to check in on the progress of those campaigns. Thanks in advance for your help. You've been listening to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy. For links to resources you heard discussed on today's show, go to flagandbanner.com, select radio, and choose today's guest. All interviews are recorded and posted the following week. Subscribe to podcasts wherever you like to listen. Carrie's goal is simple, to help you live the American dream. (music) 